Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. I don't think there's a city, and, and it's terrible to see what's going on in, in Ukraine, but the, the one city that we hear about more, I think perhaps than any other, as far as the destruction is concerned, is Mariupol. A city that, you know, three months ago was active, vibrant, very much like any largish Canadian city. Things were, things were good. And there was concern about the Russians invading, but life was good in Mariupol and not any longer. We've followed very carefully what's gone on at the steel plant. Civilians are out now. Tomorrow is uh, victory day in Russia. Who knows what Putin's going to declare? There's concerns about that. But over the last number of weeks, since the beginning of this um, Russian invasion of Ukraine, we've had the opportunity to speak with Dmitry Gurin. Mr. Gurin is the member of the Ukraine parliament for Mariupol, and he's back with us on the program um, today. Dmitry, thank you very much for taking the time. I, I should ask you, how are you? How are you holding up personally? Uh, I'm okay. Uh, nice to hear uh, all of you, and uh, nice to meet you. And uh, thank you for first of all, thank you for all your help. Uh, and uh, that uh, Mr. Trudeau uh, brand today uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and personally, I'm okay. Uh, we are used to to the war. Uh, it's un- unthinkable and unimaginable. But you one day you used to it. Uh, we all of us we uh, thought that this war is for I don't know two months, month and a half, and now we are starting not to uh, you know not to know or but to imagine and to accept that uh, this rain is for the long time, this war is for the long time, and we started to understand you know to feel inside that yeah it can be until the end of this year and maybe until the end of next year, so it's for long. Uh, and uh, this uh, the main thing that uh, changes in the, our uh, you know in our minds that uh, it's it's not going on to uh, to finish uh, like right now or in next month. Uh, and now we are waiting for 9 of May because uh, you know what's going on in uh, Ukraine it's uh, uh, what what Putin does it, now it's in narrative space about the of, of their propaganda. It's nothing real. They are saying that Hitler was uh, uh, was Jew. They are saying that uh, you know we have a, a, a Jew uh, president, but uh, that doesn't mean we cannot be Nazis and all of this. So we are not in the they are not in the real world. They are in the world of their propaganda. And in that uh, insane world, everything can happen on the 9th of May, and uh, we are waiting what will happen, because now we have all the group of uh, ships in, uh, uh, in the Black Sea, they are activated, and it's around 480, uh, sorry, 48 uh, rockets, uh, I mean, uh, that's... Uh, like some, like Tomahawk, this uh, rockets with uh, like like missiles, yeah. missile, yeah, yeah missiles, uh, mi- missiles, 
and uh, uh, we are waiting that this today, maybe tomorrow, we will we'll have a really huge attack on the infrastructure of Mariupol, uh, of, uh, of all the Ukraine. And uh, as you know, they uh, attacked today, maybe, uh, you know, they attacked today a Popasna water station and uh, more than a million people uh, are on the high risks uh, of uh, uh, losing water, drinking water, million of people also on occupied territories. And in Mariupol, uh, it's our real pain. It's uh, unthinkable what's going on there. Uh, in Azovstal, our, our army, Azov uh, battalion, uh, they are still fighting there. Uh, like more than half of them are injured. Uh, yesterday and the day before yesterday, civilians from Azovstal left Azovstal steel uh, plant. And now only our army is there. So personally, me, I'm waiting. Anything can happen, I think. Even tactical you can happen because, the, you know, Azov, it's the, the Mariupol during these eight years was a Nazi nest in uh, Russian propaganda. So if uh, civilians are out of Azovstal and only uh, so-called by Russian Nazis, uh, our, our, and in reality just our army, is on other cells still planned. They will they will try to destroy it maybe for the nine of May. So I'm so we are now all of us we are waiting what will be in there uh, in ten hats uh, for this uh, like nine of May. Uh, and uh, it's the short story how we are here. Yeah, there's great concern oh. about what Putin may announce tomorrow. There's been some talk that he may mobilize the entire Russian army and declare war on on Ukraine. Uh, you look at what he's been doing for the last 11 weeks. But nobody really knows what, what he's capable of. Cap- we know what he's capable of to a certain extent. How significant is it, um, Dimitro, to have Mr. Trudeau visit Ukraine today? it's significant and returning of uh, embassy is also significant uh, because uh, like Canada there are more than a million of Ukrainians native Ukrainians live in Canada and uh, all this uh, more than a million of people remember what Russia does uh, every 50 years by the way and uh, that uh, what we see now all of this uh, war crimes and uh, all of this uh, the behavior of Russian troops, of Russian army, it's not something new. It has happened 100 years ago and during Holodomor, during artificial uh, hunger and uh, during Second World War, when uh, Stalin and uh, Hitler divided Poland, who is also Ukrainian population, part of Poland. And uh, uh, it's, you know, the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, they... They are holders of this memory because even in Ukraine, uh, we forget it, and we uh, and uh, millions of people couldn't believe that Russians, uh, with whom we lived uh, like as a neighbors, like 30 years already, is an independent state, and before this, in, in one state, decades and decades, that they will be so cruel and uh, they will be so the, 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 all all this uh, cruelty and war crimes will we will see and we will have. And uh, in Canada, Ukrainians, they remember. 
And uh, of course, the position of uh, political position and support uh, from Canada to Ukraine, it depends on, uh, really depends on position and activity of Ukrainian diaspora. And I think they were never active as now. They were, it, it can be, uh, uh, what I see that Canadian, Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, uh, it can be compared with any of the activity there really active and uh, they are doing anything like all the Ukrainians all over the world. Yes. So what we see from Mr. Trudeau and Canada and weapons and the financial support, it's really helped. The pilots, the cabin crew, uh, passengers of a Pivot Airlines Canada charter flight to the Dominican Republic last month are being detained and the crew have been jailed in what the CEO of Pivot Airlines calls a, quote, horrific detention center, end quote. Eric Edmondson uh, also states the crew's lives have been threatened. Now, after finding suspected contraband, so 200 kilograms, I understand, of cocaine, stored on the aircraft, the Pivot crew contacted Dominican Republic authorities, who subsequently jailed the crew, and the passengers. So now Pivot and the Airline Pilots Association are warning against travel to the Dominican Republic. The CEO of Pivot Airlines joins us, Eric Edmondson. Mr. Edmondson, thank you for taking the time. What's the condition of your crew today? Hi, Roy. Thanks for, thanks for having me. A uh, very important topic to us. So uh, the condition of our crew is they have been released on bail. Um, it, it's a it's still a very very serious situation for them we have them under uh, 24/7 security uh, they are they're housed together we we have to move them every so often as there are still credible threats against them and understand that in your intro you said that they contacted the Dominican Republic authorities which they did through our dispatch office in Toronto uh, but as importantly, they also contacted the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as is our international procedure. And, you know, they, they have been now widely described in the Dominican as having um, informed the police of the narcotics. And, of course, that's a, an extremely serious situation when you're detained with uh, suspected narcotics smugglers and you're a crew member who informed on those smugglers. Yeah, so the back it up a little bit for us, Mr. Edmondson. Can you just back it up? And just for listeners who haven't heard the whole story, just tell us what happened. How did this come to be? Sure. Uh, so on March 31st, we conducted a, a charter from Toronto to Punta Cana. Um, it was going to be a five-day layover, so we brought that first crew home on an airline. The second crew entered the Dominican Republic uh, down on a commercial flight on April the 4th for an April the 5th departure. And that crew also included a, a, a maintenance mechanic who uh, was, was part of the five-person crew. On the day of the departure, while they were doing their routine checks, our maintenance office in Toronto had requested a uh, mechanic to enter an avionics bay, which is a, a, a pretty small bay underneath the belly of the aircraft to retrieve a maintenance code on a computer that they wanted to have um, in Toronto. When he entered that bay, he saw what he thought uh, or what he identified as a, a suspicious package, and that ended up being um, what we now know as narcotics. But at the time, uh, he couldn't identify it as if it was uh, you know, a bomb 
uh, arms, narcotics, or, or what have you. He promptly took a picture of and informed the captain, and then the captain informed the uh, the two authorities, both the Dominican and the Canadian authorities. Okay, so so now they're they're taken off the plane, or they're off the plane, and did they get arrested right away? How did they end up in in detention in the Dominican Republic? Well, that that is a bit of a mystery for us, and we have no uh, straight answers from the Dominican Republic authorities on that. They they had um, been cooperating with the authorities through that afternoon, showing them you know the aircraft and helping them access all sorts of panels, like you can imagine on a, on a commercial airliner, um, searching the aircraft and uh, and putting it back together. Uh, then we lost contact with them for about six hours, and uh, we found out that they had been uh, shackled, taken off to uh, to a detention center that is meant for, uh, I mean, they have such a problem down there. They have a special detention center just for narcotics criminals. So in that detention center, as I understand it, their lives were threatened, and I'm suspecting because they alerted authorities to the package, Yes. Yes, I mean I, I I can't I can't speculate as to why. I believe the reason was that uh, they had by then publicly been identified as informants. Um, this was you know twenty five million dollars worth of cocaine that they prevented from entering the streets of Canada. The the abuse um, you know was was rampant, beginning from the fact that they wouldn't let them change out of their pilot uniforms. Now you can imagine. Uh, being in a detention center for narcotic smugglers and having to dress in a professional uniform. Uh, a few days later, they did allow them to change their pilot uniforms because they stripped them naked and they had to remain uh, naked. We have uh, we had to buy them food, as is normal in, in the Dominican, and the, the food and or the money that we were giving them uh, kept disappearing, so they went three days without food. They had constant threats and, um, and you know, not only verbal attacks, but, but physical abuse from other inmates. And it was, uh, you know, it was a, a horrific detention for them. Now, I should say we have one female flight attendant who uh, was kept in a different facility for females. And, and by all accounts, she had a, a more, uh, quote unquote, traditional uh, incarceration. Hmm. So, as I understand it, so bail was granted. Now the prosecutors are challenging the bail. They want your crew back in prison. Their lives will be threatened. You've been concerned that if they go back to prison, you think it could be a one-way trip, that you'll never see them again. Um, so, so the Dominican Republic authorities are not being open with you about what's going to happen next, I gather. What's the worst-case scenario that could happen? How long could they be potentially incarcerated if they're if the system finds them guilty? Well, in, under Dominican law, you can be held for 12 months during what they have classified this case as being complex. And, um, you know, the, part of the problem is uh, for us and, and for the families and the people that are involved is that there has been no evidence, not one piece of evidence presented to date, including and shockingly in the appeal documentation. One would think if you're going to appeal the judge's decision to release on bail, that you would either point to uh, error in law, which they did not, or that you would point to evidence that has come to light since that decision, and the prosecutor failed to do that as well. So we are we are uh, entirely comfortable that this is just another tactic to to intimidate and coerce our crew and make them uncomfortable. 
and perhaps even purposely endanger their lives. Okay, what's the Canadian government doing for you? Uh, the Canadian government has been uh, responsive in, in some ways. We have had open dialogue with various departments of the government. Uh, our, our efforts through foreign affairs have been uh, somewhat uh, disappointing. We think that they've given us uh, decent support at the embassy level. Uh, what we want them to do is is first and foremost repatriate our crew who um, who have had no evidence of their involvement in this uh, supposed crime. They've had they reported the incident as is international uh, policy and followed all international and local laws. And uh, there's no reason for them to be uh, in this situation. We want the government to step in and help. But we also want the Canadian government to issue a, tra- a stronger travel advisory. There are some one million Canadians that travel to the Dominican Republic, and they should be made aware that there is no due process being afforded to our crew. They should be aware that there is no whistleblower protection. These people were not, were not just you know, out on the street and witnessed a crime. They were doing their jobs and reported their jobs uh, by every international standard or reported what they what they uh, thought was a crime by every international standard and they ended up being arbitrarily detained and every canadian traveler should reconsider travel to the dominican republic yeah well i'm glad to be able to share that message with my listeners across the country and uh, the federal government of canada doesn't always have the best record of helping canadians who are in difficulty overseas i hope they step up for your crew and uh, and i'm sure that we and the media in this country will do uh, do our bit. And Mr. Edmondson, thank you for uh, thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, it has to be extremely alarming to you. I, I'm going to be speaking with a former Air Canada captain in a few minutes who's been listening to our conversation. He's also a lawyer, and he has great concerns. All right, Captain Raymond Hall. He's a retired Air Canada captain, also former RCAF pilot. He's also a lawyer and uh, is very familiar with international realities. Raymond, as you, uh, thanks for joining us. As you listen to uh, Mr. Edmondson explain the situation with his crew, what's going through your mind? Well, my primary concern is the vulnerability of any flight crew that travels to these uh, Caribbean countries. Uh, the systems of uh, the legal systems there are not the same as the legal systems in Canada, the United States, and Britain. And one could wind up in a situation like that. Uh, having done absolutely nothing wrong. I think it's important to remember, uh, as Mr. Edmondson said, a separate crew took that aircraft into Putacana. They went home, and five days later, after the aircraft had sat on the ground for five days and five nights, a new crew was brought in. They arrived the day before the flight, uh, and they probably arrived at the airport to take that flight out not more than an hour or so before it was scheduled to leave. So they would have had no contact whatsoever with the aircraft while it was sitting on the ground. In the normal inspections of these aircraft, uh, in when a pilot does a external inspection to make sure that there's no damage to the aircraft, the only thing that they would look at is the uh, security of the door that would close that compartment that is accessible only from the ground. The flight attendants and the passengers would have absolutely no knowledge that that compartment even existed or that it could possibly carry any contraband. The pilots wouldn't inspect it. I have never inspected the E&E bay, as a matter of course, in my 20-some thousand hours of flying. 
uh, other than to ensure that the compartment door is closed. So this is a, an anomaly. There's absolutely zero probability that these that this flight crew being a different flight crew than what took the air, that, that took the aircraft in, as opposed to taking it out of the potentially out of the country, uh, would know anything about what was stored there. So they're in a situation now where it would appear that the government is looking for a scapegoat and they're subjected to the circumstances of that particular legal system, which is substantially different from what we're used to here. Okay, what's very interesting, what you just said, is that compartment is not accessible from inside the plane. You have to access it from outside the aircraft. In so, some aircraft, they are accessible, but that aircraft is a very small aircraft, and I, uh, my understanding is that it's only accessible from the outside. Okay, so if you're going to put a package into that airplane, and you just arrived at the uh, at the aircraft an hour or two, whatever the time frame was, you're saying it's very brief, then it would have been obvious if somebody of uh, the flight crew had been stuffing packages into that into that compartment. My understanding is that there were five gym bags that had over 200 kilograms. They did not bring five gym bags with 200 kilograms of cocaine from their hotel where they stayed from the day that they arrived before. They obviously didn't do that. So there is absolutely no evidence, as Mr. Edmondson suggested, that this crew had anything to do with the uh, circumstances of that flight. What are you afraid of? Uh, I mean, what, what concerns you most about the situation going forward? Well, historically, countries like the Dominican Republic have had very, very bad reputations. The World Justice Institute, for example, has a a listing of uh, the sequence of rule of law uh, rankings. There are 139 countries on the list, and the Dominican Republic ranks 97. Canada ranks number 12. United States ranks number 16. So rule of law guarantees the individuals the right to uh, habeas corpus, the right to be present, to be represented by counsel, uh, and uh, uh, to be dealt with uh, through the principles of fundamental justice, which means a uh, a speedy trial and a thorough investigation and release if there's no basis for detaining. So what you've got in that country is an absence of almost all of those characteristics. In fact, the majority of people in prison in uh, Dominican Republic have been there for over a year without charges, without trial. And, uh, of course, there are less than seemly characters in some of those institutions as well. So that's my concern. There is a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel, Roy. The, uh, the government changed hands in uh, 2020. Uh, the current president, Mr. Luis Abinader, um, um, uh, replaced uh, the uh, party that uh, represented the party, replaced the previous one that had been there for 16 years that had been involved with uh, considerable corruption. He won election on a campaign of stamping out corruption and improving the economy. And he is a Harvard-trained uh, economist, uh, master's degrees in, in several subjects, and he is also a very wealthy individual that wants to see that country change. So there is a hope there. I think in terms of the diplomatic relations, uh, my understanding is that the um, uh, deputy, the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of External Affairs actually went to the Dominican Republic to talk to the, to the consular corps down there and to the, uh, the Dominican 
uh, uh, personnel that there are there are counterparts, right. but I think we need to go to a higher level. I need, yeah, think absolutely. we need to get to the, to the from the prime yeah. minister to the president. One of the areas, one of the most uh, easily visible areas of uh, what's happening with our finances is concerned and our taxation system and uh, Canadians' wallets is at the gas station, the gas pumps across the country. It has now gotten to be extremely expensive to drive. It's going to get more expensive. And, uh, you know, people keep telling me, well, you know, if the carbon tax is lowered, it's not going to make that much difference. Yes, it will. Uh, we have the province of Alberta where Premier Kenny has uh, removed that 13 cents, uh, 13 cents provincial tax. Mr. Trudeau, though, is intent on driving the carbon tax up. It's going to go triple over the next eight years. I believe I have that correctly. Uh, my guest will tell me if I'm wrong. And uh, reducing the gas price would only help Canadians because right now it is damned expensive. And I just had a 1,500-kilometer trip planned and canceled it because the gasoline was going to be $400 plus. And I guess ultimately that's what the government wants. They want us out of our vehicles. They don't want us driving unless you have an EV. And then they'll give you a $5,000 subsidy. But most people in this country can't afford a $60,000 vehicle. Anyhow, Dan McTague is the founder and president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's also a former Liberal Member of Parliament, 18 years, was a parliamentary secretary, gets how the government works. So <laughs> I don't know where to start. Dan, why don't you start us off? Well, let me ask you this. What are the highest gas prices across Canada and where? At uh, Vancouver, uh, $2.22.9. So, uh, you know, almost uh, two and a quarter cents uh, a liter for uh, what uh, once uh, would have been uh, numbers we might have been more accustomed to in gallonage. Uh, so that's high. Uh, Victoria's not far behind, heading to 219. Uh, Newfoundland, 209. Uh, Montreal, 206.9. And of course, here in Toronto, one ninety-nine point nine. Uh, only the that's western provinces. Are- you know, that's almost an insult. A dollar ninety-nine point nine. What do you got to complain about? It's not two dollars. <laughs> exactly. No, I think uh, no one wants to be the first one to go across the finish line. And some uh, would like to copy my predictions uh, on other stations. Uh, thought it was going to be over two, but uh, precision and accuracy is important as it was Roy this time last year and two years and four years ago when I predicted quite accurately that we would see these prices move to this range and uh, Canadians were oblivious to it uh, happy to cheer on uh, you know a green policies uh, that were without consequence apparently and completely ignored uh, the warnings so here we are and it's about to get a lot more expensive can I say that again it is going to get more expensive uh, simply because Unless Vladimir Putin makes a decision tomorrow on Victory Day, May 9th, in Russia, or whatever time that should be, uh, to withdraw troops, I don't see this resolving itself, and uh, there's going to continue to be this fundamental problem of Canada not being able to step up to the plate, because you have a government in Ottawa that tripped it before it got to the plate by killing not one, not two, but uh, spiking several other pipelines, making it almost impossible for anybody to want to invest in Canada, hence a weak loony and why you're spending an extra 30 cents as a result. All right, so let me ask you to do this for us. You have uh, the people of the country who feel very strongly about green policies and have great concern about climate change. 
And there's still the uh, the message that the world's going to end in 10 years or 12 years. At least we'll be in, in a dramatically difficult situation if we don't take the steps that the uh, IPPC says we must take and Mr. Trudeau says we must take. So if, if you have these tremendous concerns and are losing sleep, people are, over the issue of climate. And then we bring into the discussion, into the debate, the, the whole issue of carbon taxation. Can you reconcile that for us, Dan? How How significantly... Uh, is carbon taxation uh, causing the price of gasoline to spike? And how significantly is that carbon tax actually helping battle climate change? Well, the politics and economics of extremism never works for any country, including Canada. And uh, you know, d- going double uh, or triple downing on the idea that you have a carbon tax or regulation that could choke off uh, the most important uh, product that we have globally, that is oil, in a country that probably produces it more cleanly and ethically than any other nation on the face of this planet is a little bit of a uh, is an example of what extremism can do. Look, if the federal government thinks that 50 cents a liter, uh, no, 50 cents, 50 dollars a ton, which is about 12 and a half cents a liter for gasoline and 50 and 15 cents for diesel, multiplying that by 3.6 times. So in other words, gasoline taxes will go to about 40 cents a liter uh, on carbon alone. And uh, for diesel, about 55 cents. And then a clean fuel standard over and above that, another 16, 17 cents. If the government believes that $2.50 a litre is the way in which to move ahead and uh, somehow encourage real polluting nations or nations that are using more CO2, and we have that debate about that, is the way to go about by punishing Canadians, um, well, frankly, I think those people don't deserve to be making any public decisions, especially since they're based on such extremism. And, and we know that in Europe, pipelines are going into operation. One's going to go in operation between Greece and uh, Bulgaria in a few weeks' time. Another one's going to be starting in a matter of very short period. We have pipelines and pipeline extensions being built in uh, in Europe. Italy's making a deal for natural gas, liquid natural gas, with Azerbaijan, Algeria, um, and, and two other countries. I can't remember which ones they are. But yeah. certainly, one of them is in Canada. We we have we have the we have the the natural gas. We could export it. Germany's going to look at building some uh, terminals for importation of liquid natural gas yeah. on their coastlines. We can't export it because we don't have again we don't have the facilities to do so on our on our ocean front. So um, it's going to be sold. It's going to be used globally. So we could sell it, and as you said, ethically produced, and it could deliver significantly huge amounts of money into our national coffers and help pay for health care, help pay for social programs, and yeah, yeah. I could go on. But anyway. Yeah, and we're the only country in the world that's actually gone down and, and reduced methane, reduced uh, NOx, uh, nitrogen, nitrogen oxide, uh, you know, sulfur dioxide. We are one of the few countries in the world that's actually met the challenge, and we do produce clean energy. But not that Canadian and the wokesters out there would actually give us credit for it. It, 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 The ignorance in this country uh, towards what we have done to improve is, is frankly, uh, uh, appalling. But more importantly, uh, it's that same ignorance that uh, let people think that uh, they could vote for parties committed to these kind of ridiculous goals that are now about to destroy uh, affordability in this country and their, you know, their dream of, uh, of prosperity. Yeah, I, you know, when I canceled that trip, it's $400 for gasoline for yeah. 1,500 kilometers. It's ridiculous. When I canceled the trip, I thought, okay, so that's just me canceling one 
one driving vacation. But all along the line on that trip, there were going to be uh, stores, yep. restaurants, yep. a whole couple of hotels, a golf course. Going to make some money? They're not going to make that money now. They won't see it because we're not going. Well, average family's now paying 2000 bucks more a year than they did last year. And you can't blame them this on COVID. We were buck twenty four a litre average in Canada. We're going to $2 a litre. For someone trying to get from point A to point B with their minivan, 50 litres a week, that's not a lot. Uh, even with the most efficient of vehicles. Roy, that's an extra 2000 bucks a year. Who's got 3100 Because after the government finishes taxing you, who can go to their boss and ask for another 10 15% increase in prices? So don't be surprised when we start to see wages trying to match these energy surge price surges, which, of course, are going to make their way throughout the plenum of the economy. What you buy, even at the grocery store, is going to be uh, prices are going up. And they'll be affected by the carbon tax because, as we heard from Ron Foxcroft yesterday, the massive amount of money it costs to fuel the trucks. Ultimately, eventually, the the transportation companies are going to have to start to pass on a fuel surcharge to the retailer who's going to do what? Pass it on to the consumer. So we're paying more of the pump and we'll pay more for the stuff that we're buying at the store for the same reason, carbon tax. Roy, if we had two pipelines working today that Trudeau government didn't kill, you'd have two million barrels going to the global markets. You drop the price of oil by about ten to twenty dollars a barrel. That would save every Canadian about twenty cents. And here's the kicker: it would also increase the value of the Canadian dollar back to where it was in the good old days of being the petrodollar. We'd be saving fifty-five cents a liter. You and I might not even be having this discussion. I have to ask you this question before we take the break. Mm-hmm. Then we'll take some sure. calls for you. You're very familiar with Paul Martin. You're a friend of Paul Martin. You work together in Parliament. Um, Paul Martin was a very efficient, very effective liberal cabinet minister, finance minister. Would Paul Martin be doing this? I don't think so. He'd be asking Dan McTagg and others in the caucus to what, uh, which way ahead. He'd be saying, we need to find a rebate for Canadians uh, to get some of this HST, GST money. The governments are you know, basically pilfering from the, from the Canadian public. Remember, that 75 cent a litre year-over-year increase on HST alone in the province of Ontario means the federal provincial government's got a few billion bucks to throw around. Obviously, uh, you know, it's not going back to Canadians. It should, and that's something Martin would have pursued. In fact, I've got proof that he did, because uh, you and I talked about this 22 years ago when uh, an enterprising MP acts, uh, the finance minister, they do that, and he did just that. So, yes, I think Martin would say, uh, you're going to destroy the, you know, consumers and our ability to get make ends meet in this country, uh, full stop. All right, let me see. Uh, let's talk to Dave, who's in British Columbia, a beautiful place known as Fanny Bay. I know Ooh, where you are, you. Dave. I know where you are, Dave. Hey, uh, uh, thanks, Roy. Thanks, Dan. Um, Dan, if uh, if we actually were self-sufficient in Canada, i.e. got uh, energy east through, do you, feel, do you think that there would be a possibility that we could have uh, stable prices? And, and to you, Roy, maybe you could ask uh, one of those polling companies to uh, do an opinion poll in Quebec and see what the people of Quebec really feel about, uh, about uh, energy's pipeline. Thanks. Oh, I, look, I can tell you right now, the Montreal Economic Institute does these polling, uh, has these polls on a regular basis, and they consistently for years have found Quebecers want the pipelines, they want the oil delivered by pipeline, and they want it from Western Canada. That's the average Quebecer, not the Quebec government, but the average Quebecer. Dan, what about the question for Dave? Uh, Dave, look, um, and Roy, by the way, uh, average price Eastern Canada, 228 for diesel, uh, British Columbia, 225 
Uh, and of course, only the prairies are down in the 160, 180, okay. 190 range. So, uh, but Dave, listen, uh, if we had the Trans Mountain Pipeline pushing out the 800,000 barrels, it was designed to do without exposing the public to all sorts of uh, li- financial liabilities because of all the protests and your premier, you know, using every tool in the toolbox to stop this thing. Had we had Northern Gateway and had we had uh, Energy East already flowing, you would see two things. One, the Canadian dollar would save you, would, uh, would be back to par, saving you 30 cents a litre. And of course, it would help diminish the price of oil. Putin wouldn't have his stranglehold over uh, Ukraine. I would expect uh, that would, alone would probably save you about 50, maybe even 60 cents a litre. Okay, Dan, hold on a second. I've got Bruce on from Toronto, who's asking a question that relates to what you've just uh, talked about. Bruce, go ahead, please. Thanks for the call, sir. Hello, I wanted to ask Anna where we would be if the Keystone XL pipeline hadn't been shut day one of the Biden presidency. What's going to happen if uh, Line 5 gets shut down, Gretchen Whitmer gets her way? That supplies about 55% of oil and gas to southwestern Ontario. And how much does this have to do with uh, the Green New Deal now renamed the Build Back Better slash Great Reset plan that Klaus Schwab talks about in his book that... Jason Kenney says he's got a copy of, uh, along with many other world leaders. All right, Bruce, you're on uh, on a mobile phone. I thank you for the call. I'm going to put you, uh, ask you to listen off uh, off air because I can't have you both on mobile phones. You'll sort of feed into each other. Dan, what about what uh, Bruce just asked? Well, Keystone would have given uh, 900,000 barrels to the United States. Uh, that's a little bit more than what they're importing still from Russia, 800,000 barrels a day, shamefully. Uh, so when you hear Californians talking about our oil sands, Remind them, uh, I'll take the oil sands any day over the fact that they're more reliant on Russian oil. That aside, if we uh, look at the Line 5, uh, the attempt by uh, the the state governor, Democratic uh, noted state governor, and her attorney general, uh, Dana Nessel, to shut down that pipeline, that would would deliver about a 60% decrease in our oil necessary to run our economy here in Ontario, and it would also extend to propane, uh, for the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, for all of Ontario, and yes, for Quebec. So we would be in a pickle the likes of which we have never seen before, and it's one of the reasons why I think at the last second the Trudeau government really smartened up because they realized it would even shut down okay. his ability to fly around the world. I'm going to squeeze in one more call here, hmm. and uh, Daryl's calling from uh, New Brunswick. How are you, Daryl? I'm doing pretty good, Roy, and hopefully Dan is doing well. Hey, Daryl. Um, I'm just calling uh, reference the uh, diesel price here. The other day hit uh, 268. There you go. And uh, being out in uh, previous oil field experience as well, um, they could use the energy out here and even ship it out offshore. Where Daryl is from, uh, Roy, we shut down three refineries. The two in Philadelphia area, PES, PBF, uh, are partially shut down, and the Come By Chance refinery, which you and I helped save back in 1999. Uh, we've painted ourselves into a corner, and it's a serious one. Canada has the solution. We've decided not to be part of it. The rest of the world is scratching its head, wondering why. Daryl's exactly spot on. 270 a liter for uh, for diesel in many parts of Atlantic Canada right now. All right. Catherine Swift is the president of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. She's the past president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She is, of course, a charter member of our Beauties and the Beast panel. And sometimes lost in all of this biographical information is the fact that Catherine is also a highly respected economist. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Roy. How's Canada? 
<laughs> not so good, I'm afraid, from speaking from an economics perspective. And of course, I have to remind you at the outset, they do call economics the dismal science for a reason. So here we go with the dismal. <laughs> okay, let's let's put this all, let me put it all into a little box for you. Put the lid on it. Tie a little bow. Let me get a pretty bow for you. And now you think there's something interesting in the box. You don't know what's in there. You open it up, Catherine, and you see inflation, higher than it's been in 30 years. Interest rate hikes, where the government of the Bank of Canada actually says they're going up, regardless of what you may want. Uh, the concern that interest rate hikes may, if they're not applied correctly, lead to recession. And then there's this last little piece of paper in that pretty box that says stagflation. Okay, you have the box, you have the floor. Well, uh, knowing we were going to be speaking about this today, Roy, I just sort of reviewed in my head some of the big trends that, that are affecting Canada right now. We have that good old inverted yield curve happening, which basically means that short-term interest rates, short-term bond yields exceed long-term yields. And because and this means the short term is viewed by the markets as riskier than the long term, which means nothing good. And an inverted yield curve often is a harbinger of recession, not always, but often. We, we also have some international studies. The OECD did one relatively recently that actually showed Canada's economy was expected to be dead last among developed countries. And not just and this was not just for the next 10 years, for the next 40 years, out until 2060, if you can believe it, with average growth of GDP less than 1% a year. And that's your stagflation, you know, that you're that you're uh, referring to there. Very bad news. Um, uh, we've seen terrible productivity growth. One of the key things is bad productivity growth. But again, we have huge government spending, growth of big government at the expense of the private sector. And the private sector is still and will always be the only true generator of prosperity. Governments suck up money, they never produce prosperity. So that's a lot of our problem too. And I thought it was very interesting that in the last, in the federal budget we, we saw just a few weeks ago, Christia Freeland acknowledged our bad productivity performance and she was correct. She was absolutely correct in doing so. But her answer was that she created two new government agencies. I thought, wow, if there's ever a dumber way to deal with productivity problems, well, I, I don't know what it is. You know, let's have more government to deal with the problem of productivity in our economy. We have labor shortages, and they're based on a number of things. Partly, I'm a baby boomer. Uh, you are too, Roy. Um, you know, we, we are retiring now, and the pandemic actually accelerated the retirement of a lot of baby boomers. So that is one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons we're seeing labor shortages. Uh, other reasons, however, is that, you know, all those generous government programs that vastly increased our money supply during the pandemic, the Serbs and, you know, all the other ones, um, uh, meant that an awful lot of younger people postponed their entry into the workforce because, hey, they could get a couple of grand a month for doing nothing. Uh, we also have skill match problems. The skills that are necessary in the private sector are not matched by the labor force that's available. So there's a whole pile of different reasons and that will that will hold our economy back as well. We also have an employment insurance system that particularly in some parts of the country rewards people for basically not working for years and years and years on end. 
So that makes that, that makes things worse. Um, and what this means, I mean, again, we can sort of talk about this as if it's some kind of academic exercise. But what this means is lower standards, lower standards of living for Canadians. And that's a very real, real impact. You know, we always like to think that our kids and their kids, and this is Mother's Day after all, so we're thinking about mummies and kids. Uh, we like to think our kids are going to have a better standard of living than we are. Well, and that's been true. That's actually been true for decades. Um, but going forward, it doesn't like it's, look like it's going to be true anymore. So that's a big problem. Now, this, this forecast, this dismal forecast, can change if we change our policies, move away from big government, encourage investment in Canada, which right now the federal government in particular is discouraging, as we know, in the energy sector and in a number of other key sectors. Canada does not have a good reputation in terms of international investment right now, and, and that is that's hurting our economy and will happen for some time. So it, it can, you know, this can change, but we have to change our policy approaches. But just as a closure, I, I should say to you, Roy, uh, I, I remember an old joke I heard about economists, and they say that economists predicted seven out of the last three recessions. So you have to keep that in mind. <laughs> you know, we have our own decisions to make. We can lift ourselves out of economic stupor because we have what the world wants and the world is going to need it. And everybody knows what I'm talking about. The world is going to need it long beyond 2050. But what I keep thinking about is that RBC report that I uh, did an interview on some months ago, Catherine, 21 or 23 pages, about the road to 2050 and, uh, and net zero. And the line that I will always remember in that particular report was, Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable and then the most fundamental question I ask after that is the basic journalistic question, why? And I still, I know what the answer is. I just can't get anybody in the nation's capital to honestly answer it. No, anyway. you're absolutely right, Roy. And and it's what is so disheartening, too, uh, this stupid net zero push which many, many very accomplished scientists in various disciplines have shown is impossible to achieve on that timeline. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 